When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. This episode of the Birdshot Podcast is presented by Onyx Hunt, Final Rise, and Upland Gun Company. On this episode of the show, we're talking forest habitat and conservation with Scott Johnson of the Rough Grouse Society. Thanks for tuning in to episode number 223. All right, thanks for joining us on this episode of the Bird Chat Podcast. We've got a great conversation coming up for you with Scott Johnson of the Rough Grouse Society and American Woodcock Society. We'll jump into that momentarily, but first I want to thank Patreon patrons of the Bird Chat Podcast, those of you out there making voluntary contributions in support of the show, keeping these episodes coming your way. Those patrons are eligible for monthly giveaways, of which we'll have one coming up probably on next week's show. Some discounts and offers from time to time. Bonus content, just recorded another bonus episode with Kadare this morning that will be up on the Patreon page shortly. And we do set everybody up with some Birdshot Podcast canned coolers and stickers. So thanks, as always, to Patreon patrons of the show. You can learn more and sign up at patreon.com forward slash birdshot. All right, we're still running the Birdshot Podcast listener survey. You can find that link in the show notes of this episode as well as the previous two. If you haven't completed that yet, I'll remind you once again. It's 22 questions, very quick. Won't take you more than a few minutes. Just tap that link in the show notes, fill out the survey, and thank you for doing so, of course. All right, leave a rating, review, subscribe to the show, follow the show, whatever you can do in the podcast app you're listening on. Those little things are always helpful to the show as well. Just take a moment of your time. Please consider doing so if you haven't already. I will throw out one quick mention for an upcoming Upland Gun Company event that I don't know that I mentioned on the previous couple. I've been talking about the Minnesota Horse and Hunt event coming up later in June. But before that, coming up next weekend, depending on when you're listening to this, June 10th and 11th, 
myself and Dan LaFon from Upland Gun Company will be at Green Acres Hunt Club just south of Chicago. If you're longtime listeners of the show, it is the hunt club run by former guest of the show, Keith Coyle, wing shooting instructor, gun fitter, and hunt club manager. So I'm looking forward to seeing him next weekend, along with perhaps some listeners of the Birdshot podcast. There is a shoot going on there on Saturday that is full. However, Dan and I will be set up with our Upland Gun Company RFM shotguns on display there for you to peruse. And some of those should be available to shoot at a nearby pattern plate and clay thrower. So this upcoming Saturday and Sunday, June 10th and 11th. So while the shoot event is fully registered, anyone hearing this that is interested in stopping by is welcome to do so on Saturday. And in addition to that, on Sunday, June 11th, the club would also be open for you to go shoot a round of sporting clays at the member price if you're interested in doing that. So this upcoming Saturday, Sunday, June 10th and 11th, Green Acres Hunt Club, South Chicago in Illinois. I'll put a link to the Green Acres website in the show notes, and there is a posting on the Upland Gun Company website as well if you need more information. Okay, let's get into it. Today we are talking to Forest Conservation Coordinator Scott Johnson from the Ruffed Grouse Society. I caught up with Scott last week just after our local RGS and AWS chapter had a committee meeting talking about some upcoming events and the potential for some Habitat Workdays. And Scott was on my list to get a hold of, get some updates on RGS and AWS forest conservation in the region. And in so doing, I figured we would learn a little bit more about Scott's background, how he got into forestry, how he wound up working for the Ruffed Grouse Society, some of the things he and the organization have been up to as of late. So with that said, we'll get right into it and welcome into the conversation and onto the Birdshot Podcast of the Ruffed Grouse Society, Scott Johnson. Mine's sleeping. It's it's cool out this morning, so he's just uh, he's just racked out. What kind of dog <laughs> do you have, Scott? I have uh, German wire hair pointer, just one right now, and um, thinking and hoping, and the whole family, especially kids, uh, have uh, have me on the line for another one here soon. So, <laughs> are we thinking same breed? Yes, we are. Uh, you know, lots of I think you have, you have setters, Nick. Correct. I can't remember. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. The classic guy. Um, um, but, uh, there's some pull for that, but I don't know, I'm, I'm stuck on the, the German wire hairs. So the, uh, the versatility idea, um, is, is great for me. Although in practice, my German wire hairs are rough grouse and woodcock dogs pretty much. So I could probably go classic setter English pointer someday. Yeah. Well, <laughs> if you, if you need any set, setter Kool-Aid, I could, I could probably pour you a okay. glass or two. <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah. No, great dogs too. I mean, yeah, impressive in the, in the grouse woods for sure. So yeah, yep. good yeah. stuff. Well, we are, we are on the Birdshot podcast and I'm really happy to have you on board with us today. Thanks for taking some time out of your busy day. Did we pull you out of the woods today? Or as you mentioned, it, it is kind of cool and windy um, today. You had some office work planned. Yes, actually, uh, your uh, offer to do a, a podcast with me um, helped me decide to stay inside today. So that was a good choice. Yeah, <laughs> uh, love it. And and like we were saying, what a difference! Uh, we got about a forty degree difference from yesterday to to today, and uh, it's still May. So I guess we got to expect a little bit of that here in Minnesota. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. The bugs have hatched, and um, the weather's fluctuating between too hot and too cold. So. 
yeah, anyway, good, good days to do some office work. So Scott Johnson, forest conservation coordinator, Minnesota, and a little bit in Northwest Wisconsin for the Ruffed Grouse Society. Once again, thanks for joining us today. Tell us a little bit about what you do for Rough Grouse Society on a daily basis. Sure. Um, so yeah, forest conservation coordinator and that coordinator piece can mean um, project management or um, coordinating with, with partner organizations. I guess those would be two highlight uh, functions of my job and um, uh, work across particularly Minnesota, uh, dabble in helping my boss, maybe not here and there in Northwest Wisconsin, but Minnesota is my focus and, um, project management, anything that, uh, has to do with, uh, conservation project management in Minnesota, um, is, is something that I would have some involvement in. So. Excellent. And I want to, I want to get a little bit of your background. I've, I know from talking to you a little bit in the past that you are, I believe you're from Minnesota. Is that correct? I was not raised in Minnesota, but have a uh, uh, family connection to uh, lots of parts of Minnesota. In fact, my family, my uh, folks lived in Duluth at one time, wow. but I kind of grew up uh, across the uh, Midwest and a variety of places and um, uh, found my way to Minnesota, though, at about 20 years old. So, okay. yeah, I've done most of my forestry career in Minnesota, although I did just uh, come back from a blip of 10 years in Colorado. So. <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah. And that, and that's the, that's the piece that I, I knew that was sort of your last move before joining Rough Grouse Society. And so I would, I would love to hear a little bit about how you, how you got into forestry, you know, what was the, sure. what was the pathway that led into that? And then I'd, and then we'll talk a little bit about your time out West and kind of transitioning back here to Minnesota. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Well, uh, like a lot of my peers in, in forestry, natural resources and folks like you um we we have an interest in uh, a hobby interest in hunting fishing outdoor things and um um yeah, a lot of times with some of us find a way to have a career that that has some involvement in that so um yeah i got uh, interested in um forestry and uh habitat management uh, uh from that and started off with uh school and forestry at itasca community college in grand rapids that was my first uh start to career in the field so yeah um and then um i guess jumping around but uh, i i worked in northern st louis county for a big chunk of my career okay um worked for uh the county itself as a forestry technician for a number of years which was a great a fantastic job gave me great opportunities to to really learn foundations of uh forest management work and being in the field and um um, and then I did some some time in private forest industry and habitat um, work in in the same general area, and uh, and then I did uh, decided my wife is a forester also. Um, we decided to go uh, to Colorado for for uh, I guess an, an exp- a diversification experience. Sure. So and that that was some great time too. But uh, I, I guess I always. Uh, I became uh, involved in Rough Grouse Society in the, the Virginia, Minnesota chapter years ago and uh, have always been an upland bird person and uh, bird dog person. So um, always had that connection and uh, carried that out west for a while. And um, um, and then when this uh, Rough Grouse Society job that I'm in now came up, I just 
had to apply it. It fit my uh, personal and professional uh, interests. So uh, here I am back in Minnesota. Yeah, so. <laughs> very cool. Yeah, a lot of different directions to go there. So, so you were, I, I picked up on this, you did, you were kind of a, exposed to hunting at an early age were there were there bird dogs involved back then yes. or okay yes absolutely um um my dad had uh hungarian vishlas and english pointers mm. and um he did a well and we also had some retrieving dogs and some duck hunting stuff but mostly um upland bird stuff and um um my dad uh is particular into in the field trialing now. So I'm the, I'm the main hunter, hunter in the group, but, uh, anyway, field trials, dogs. And so I've had involvement in pointing dogs for a while. And when did grouse hunting enter the picture where that would have been in when you kind of wound up in Minnesota around 20 and you started grouse hunting? That's yep. I really got into it about that age. I, you know, I had some, some grouse woods time before that too, but I, I got, you know, I got my own bird dog, my own personal bird dog, I suppose, around that time, German wire hair pointer and um, working in forestry. So in the field, literally the, the field where the yeah. where the birds are, I guess the woods. And uh, um, yeah, that was fantastic hook there and uh, became particularly uh, excited about that. And so much like many of us, I think yourself included, you can hardly bring yourself to do any of the other types of hunting like deer hunting and uh everything else because you're so uh you're just looking at the grouse woods the whole time and you want to go do that so <laughs> yeah that would that would describe me to a t pretty much uh my deer hunting has pretty much um gone to nothing and you know i've, I've the listeners will know i've been finding myself in the turkey woods this spring but that's only because we can't hunt grouse this time of year and i'm just out yes, there scouting right. for grouse cover anyways <laughs> right i know <laughs> you're looking for grouse mostly while you're out looking for turkey yep <laughs> absolutely have you um on that note have you so i've been i'll just say i've been hearing i've been hearing and seeing a lot of pretty good anecdotal reports about uh grouse numbers in the woods and i've yes. in the little time that i've spent out i've heard heard good drumming i feel like drumming you kind of hear that all the time. It's you hear it. And, um, I wouldn't necessarily say that I hear a ton more any one year than the other, but I've been seeing birds in good numbers and I've, I've had that corroborated by enough folks at this point where I think the grouse had pretty good winter survival and your time kicking around out there. What have you seen? Absolutely. Yes. This winter i've been working on a couple couple projects with some of our partners which hopefully we take a minute to talk i I might have jumped over specific projects but out in the woods in in a number of different areas here in northern minnesota and uh anecdotal observations on those is just fantastic i mean just birds everywhere late winter early spring they seem to be happy and abundant and then yeah i did um one uh, drumming survey uh, for Minnesota DNR myself, okay. and certainly DNR has not yet uh, summarized the data from the spring drumming counts. Right. But I, those that I've heard have have mostly or all been been good. So cool, yeah. They're, they're just hoping. Um, and then, uh, as you've probably talked about on the podcast, or you know, there's a lot of um, you know concern as to whether the uh, the spring drumming counts necessarily will correlate with big great numbers in fall hunting season and probably has a lot to do with uh, brood survival and, mm-hmm. and weather 
through the summer, but uh, it's nice to start off with uh, surprisingly good numbers in the spring, I think. So, <laughs> yes. Yeah. I'm glad, I'm glad you mentioned that. Cause I was going to, I mean, anytime you start talking about drumming counts, I feel like what we've seen in the last 10 years, it's, it's important to, to mention that it's, you know, that drumming count in, we're talking Minnesota specifically, but it's, it's been done in other places, obviously, but that's an index it in, and it yes. is, it is measuring, male ruffed grouse that survived the winter and that that you can draw a number of conclusions from that but it's it also doesn't automatically correlate to the bird numbers we see in the fall and uh, my opinion the the hatch the nesting conditions and hatch can have a much bigger impact in on what we see in the fall um, compared to the drumming counts but as you as you pointed out it's never a bad thing to see good good drumming numbers Yes, you're right. That's probably going to be. I mean, it's a it's a good index, but yes. uh, but yeah, won't necessarily mean that uh, each of the dozen chicks is going to make it to fall. So yeah. yep. But it is it is interesting too because we are technically we would be in the historical downward trend of right. the cycle, and I think last yeah. year, just going off memory here, the drumming cons kind of ticked up a little bit, and I think if you ask. Uh, a good number of grouse hunters around the really across the upper great lakes i could speak to pretty much minnesota and wisconsin specifically that the the bird numbers last fall were pretty good and i think we had good conditions for it um so now to see the the winter conditions play out the way they did and and anecdotally we're we're seeing birds in the woods this spring those are those are good signs but time will time will tell yeah that's that seems like a great summary to me, what you just said. And, uh, my observations and communication with people are exactly the same. I, I think I heard, I met one or two people in various rough growth society events over the past, uh, well, since last fall that didn't have a great, right. a notably great season, but everybody else stated otherwise through and across the state. So pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. How have you noticed, uh, if you've been out within the last week or so, how about mosquitoes? I'm starting to hear oh, that mosquitoes are awful. <laughs> yes. Yes, they are. Yep. So good moisture, <laughs> good yeah. snow conditions for grouse, uh, good mosquito, uh, reproduction in the spring, I guess. So yeah, I, I, um, let's see, I've been, I work a couple days per week in the field. I try to get out a couple days per week in the field and, and that's what I've been doing the whole time here with the rough grouse society. But, um, in the past, I'd say about a week and a half ago, it was just beautiful. That right when it warmed up uh, a bit, uh, the humidity wasn't up. Uh, there were no mosquitoes and, um, uh, fantastic. And just overnight for me in the central part of Northern Minnesota, they, they've just exploded full on. So almost, uh, it's, it's, it's mental game time where you just have to, uh, <laughs> not think about it and let them chew on you. So, yeah. What, what are your, what, what do you wear a bug suit out there? What do you do? <laughs> I don't, but, uh, because I feel like I just feel, um, claustrophobic and, and yeah. I feel like the humidity goes up inside a bug net. Mm-hmm. So, no, I, I feel like the best way to do it is to just mentally power through them. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Man, that's uh, that that I always you see the see the swarms and or you get out there a little bit and it's just yeah that would be I I think of you guys that have to that have to work in the field and you know I I don't have to go out there I go out there by choice but I can always leave. <laughs> you got work to do. Yeah. 
Well, I do try to be strategic, like sure. uh, today's uh, meeting on the phone here uh, worked out good to avoid the mosquitoes for one day, but they'll probably still be there tomorrow when I get out. So. Right, right. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm, uh, I've got plans to turkey hunt in the morning, and I'm at this point to to sort of psych myself up. I'm tell you know it's cooler today, and it's gonna the temp's gonna drop down tonight. So I'm telling myself it's it's not gonna be too bad in the morning. I wish I had my turkey <laughs> at this point, and I didn't have to <laughs> didn't have to go up. You could be done. The yeah. bugs have not been a, an issue for me yet, but we'll uh, we'll see what happens when I get out there tomorrow. <laughs> yep. Good luck. I yeah. don't know. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned St. Louis County. I wonder. Uh, mm-hmm. Let's spend a minute or two talking about because. St. Louis County, for those that don't know, it's the county that I live in, in the very southern mm-hmm. part of, of St. Louis County in Duluth. Huge yep. county, very, very, very large county, um, lots of forest. I wonder what what there might be to talk, you know, with, we've got the Bore, Boreal Forest, you've got, you've mm-hmm. got portions of the Boundary Waters, I think would be in St. Louis County. Yep. Talk a little bit it, yep. about, your, about your experience working in St. Louis County and just some of the things that stand out to you with respect to forest management. Sure, I'd be glad to. I Working with St. Louis County for the county and the county's land department, which many of your listeners and certainly you know, how uh, significant that is in the mm-hmm. Great Lakes region where, where counties themselves uh, have over the years retained and managed uh, forest lands for um, um, for profit for the county, people of the county, and, and also they're providing um, uh, forest products and uh, recreational uh, opportunities for us. And it's real important in St. Louis County, uh, a number of the counties in, in northern Minnesota are significant, but St. Louis County is the largest county-owned land base. Um, so I'm speaking for for St. Louis County now. It feels funny after uh, I've been gone from there for about 12 years, but um, I, I do get to work with them now with Rough Grouse Society um, in partnership projects, a lot of uh, real, real cool projects. But the county itself, um, multiple-use management, uh, forest products, recreation, um, um, it's just, just a great, uh, attribute for us hunters in Minnesota. So, yeah. With respect to the Boreal forest and what do you remember mm-hmm. man- managing mostly like where you, you, you know, there's obviously a lot of Aspen cutting and Aspen regeneration sure. going on, but talk about some of the other tree species and some of the other forest types on the landscape. Yeah. Well, um, Aspen, Still is and, and has been um, king in in most of northern Minnesota. Mm-hmm. They, you know, one of the most desirable uh, or important, I guess, timber products in in Minnesota, and and also just such a, a great attribute. One of the one of the big reasons that we're such a, a great rough grouse uh, state uh, is our uh, dominance of aspen on the, on the landscape. So, um, but yeah, management. Uh, in in St. Louis County, and and I guess I'll just try to bring in some of the the different projects we're, we're yeah. working with uh, the Rough Grouse Society. Now we're, we're again working with St. Louis County and and um, and and the other land manager agencies around there, Minnesota DNR, uh, the Superior National Forest. In that case, uh, over there, we're also working a little bit to the west with the Chippewa National Forest. Um, and um, you know what kind of management you're saying, um, forest management. They, you know, Rough Grouse Society, as you know, we we uh, um, really embrace the the idea of uh, diversity on the landscape, ecologically guided uh, forest 
species and uh, uh, age classes on the landscape to to generally achieve most of the the big goals that that most of the agencies and most of us stakeholders uh, are interested in those being uh, economics of of forest products uh, recreation and wildlife um, those are some of the big ones and, and age class diversity can provide that uh, along with forest health and other another big one so yeah. when you have uh, a mix of uh, young stands old stands uh, diverse species on the landscape you're gonna you're gonna provide for a greater abundance of uh, of wildlife and wildlife species and you're gonna provide for a generally healthier or more resilient forest to to insect disease climate issues um, things like that and I, the rough grouse as you know Nick full well is just such a great and classic indicator of uh, uh, when you have those conditions yeah. where 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 your rough grouse can have great brood uh, survival with young dense forests in the vicinity of of older winter food source uh, forests in the area, so yeah, yeah, so that's um, and and I, I kind of skipped over some specific species. I mean, the forest types, as you know, in the boreal forest, aspen's a big one, the, the black spruce swamps, mm-hmm. jack pine, um, uh, red and white pine. Um, the uh, when you get far up into the uh, the Minnesota boreal forest, you start to get that upland black spruce, that conifer mix yeah. um, on those thin um, Canadian Shield soils, and um, yeah, so you know management for for all of those takes different silvicultural techniques, but that that same general idea applies that the age um, and species diversity uh, kind of an ecologically guided one so looking at what species of trees and uh, are appropriate in in age classes and patches sizes what's appropriate for the for the the history the ecological and the fire regime natural disturbance histories what's appropriate these are things that help guide um, what we would like to see into the future on those landscapes so yeah. yeah. What always comes to mind for me is what you kind of touched on at the end there is as you get into the northern northern reaches of the county and really the, just the Arrowhead region in general in Minnesota, mm-hmm. those those thin Canadian Canadian shield soils where you've got lots of rock and you've got, you know, challenging terrain and topography that I think would make it difficult to to get logging jobs done. Yeah. Up there. That's a that's a big deal and um that's that's actually uh some of the work that uh, we've been particularly involved in in that area recently where uh, you're probably familiar with the, the moose habitat collaborative that yeah. rough grouse society is the sponsor of in in this region and um, that and uh, we're recently working on on some potential forest stewardship partnership work with the superior national forest but in all of those we're working with all the land agencies, a number of uh, um, tribes, uh, other nonprofits, and um, we're working to to promote the restoration in some cases of those those different age classes we just talked about, like the Moose Habitat Collaborative. Um, some folks raise their eyebrows when Rough Grouse Society is the sponsor of a Moose Habitat Collaborative, but but the the general um, um, conditions that are desired to uh, to restore good moose habitat um, in northern Minnesota is is 
large patches that include um, these different age classes that we just talked about. And, um, and that actually happens to also be good rough grouse, woodcock, uh, spruce grouse, um, yeah. um, habitat improvements. So, and, uh, and yes, that the operability in that area, the rocks, the terrain, the distance from uh, some of the big uh, uh, mills in Minnesota make it the economics difficult up there. So, you know, Rough Grouse Society is excited to be working with all those partners I just mentioned to to try to continue to uh, um, restore in some cases and, and implement some of these age class diversity on the landscape. So, yeah, yeah. You mentioned the stewardship agreements, and that's something mm-hmm. that I've, yeah. I've become familiar with, and Rough Grouse Society has definitely been leaning into in the last few years. Let's let's take a moment yeah. to, I'd to, love to break that down. Yes. Yeah. So the Chippewa National Forest would be the the big in the first partner that we uh, yeah. you know are pretty well established in doing that on. So yeah, I'll let you guide your question before I jump right into it. But I'm glad you brought up the, the stewardship because I wanted to talk a bit about. Yeah, that. well, <laughs> just just I just want to make it clear, like how how does it work? What's the what is the what is the goal of it, and and how yeah. is how is the the uh, is that working within sort of the the model of, of forest conservation with Rough Grouse Society? Yeah, well, great. You set, set me up to say all the <laughs> great important things here, uh, and that's exactly it. I, you know, the the mo- the Rough Grouse Society's model is um, uh, is classically exemplified by by the stewardship, the partner stewardship program of the U.S. Forest Service, and that's where the U.S. Forest Service engages with partners like us, Rough Grouse Society, um, and exchanges goods, timber for services, habitat improvements. And uh, of course, Rough Grouse Society, we we very much uh, believe in the importance of uh, working relationship with uh, forest land uses and, and forest product industry. So um, timber harvesting projects where revenue is produced from the timber itself, um, also creating and applied in a way that, that restores desired conditions of age class diversity on the landscape isn't in itself you know, creating and improving uh, wildlife habitat in Minnesota and forest health, but also um, producing revenue through those timber products that we then take to do additional enhancement work. And, um, you know, for the U.S. Forest Service, the benefit is uh, having a partner like us who who brings uh, stakeholders, enthusiasm, support, capacity with with people like self um, to to do projects. And, and for Rough Grouse Society, it's just a tangible way to get hands-on involvement in um, um, doing the good work of uh, forest health and forest wildlife habitat. So um, in, in the case of Chippewa National Forest, we, we've completed um, our second uh, timber harvest with uh, contract partners uh, to applied in a um, age class diversity uh, rough grouse management area scheme. Um, uh, some aspen harvests just completed that second one this year, and and now we're taking the the revenue from those successful harvests and doing things like wildlife permanent wildlife opening enhancements, uh, maintaining. Um, um, hunter walking trail networks in association with those and other areas, uh, and the 
gates and and uh, infrastructure for uh, um, uh, hunter access to to locations like that. And so we're taking that revenue and putting it back into a variety of other enhancements. So how are those? So actually, I I, I do want to highlight. So the the stewardship agreement, as you laid out, one of the really cool things. This this is national forest property. So by RG, RGS stepping up and getting these timber sales set and 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 cut you're right. you're allowed to keep that revenue within the state of Minnesota put it back into the ground and in a, in an opportunity that may otherwise have not existed that's correct yes that's it's it's US forest service ground it's US forest service timber and the the revenue produced go, goes back to agreed upon um, habitat improvements yeah. i believe always back on the U.S. Forest Service lands. There may sure. be some opportunity to work with uh, for some of that funding to help with, you know, boundarying uh, or uh, bordering uh, properties. But but so far and primarily the uh, the focus is back in the U.S. Forest Service uh, projects. So, yeah. Yep. And so with respect to some of those things that you are doing with that timber sale revenue, how are those, how are those decisions made as to, you know, where it goes to hunter walking trails to forest wildlife opening, which we're definitely going to talk about forest wildlife openings. Um, Is it just kind of an assessment of needs in the area? Absolutely. And that's, that's the collaboration. That's, you know, part of the work, but also part of the the great opportunity that that brings us, us rough grouse society to the table where, where I guess I get to um, bring some of the um, um, us, you, you and I, and our our memberships, right. uh, stakeholders, ideas to the table and in particular interests and, and balance that uh, with with other needs and requirements that U.S. Forest Service needs to achieve and and uh, you know measure that against what the current conditions already are and the whatever area of forest we're talking about. And so yeah, we work collaboratively. We work. I get to work uh, directly with with um, a variety of the disciplines at U.S. Forest Service. They're wildlife biologists, they're they're foresters, they're silviculturists who are also foresters, they're uh, um, uh, ecologists, botanists, uh, recreation specialists, all those people, especially the forestry and, and wildlife folks. I get to spend a lot of time with them talking about the details of of what project and why and how that, that we want to work on. And once we uh, come to agreement on that, uh, Rough Grouse Society gets to move forward with uh, implementing projects on the ground with those revenues that are um, um, produced from the forest product themselves and uh, importantly Nick with, with match from rough grouse society from our important fundraising events from right. uh, uh, all of our membership and leadership like yourself so yeah gearing up for your next hunt check out ugly dog hunting company for all your dog supply needs ugly dog hunting carries a full line of products for your bird dog and even some for you whether you're looking for dog collars gps tracking devices kennels beds leads training equipment or first aid supplies ugly dog hunting carries it and a whole lot more new owner of the company and friend of the bird shop podcast mike nadusky loves to remind me that while i do hunt with pretty dogs every dog can be an ugly dog Check out the entire selection of gear for you and your bird dog at UglyDogHunting.com. 
For many upland hunters, along with their passion for dogs, birds, and the places we chase them, comes a passion for shotguns. Upland Gun Company specializes in customizing shotguns for the upland bird hunter imported from Italy and shipped direct to an FFL near you. Select from one of their side-by-side or over-under shotgun platforms and customize the fit, function, and aesthetics to your liking. Design and build your next Upland hunting shotgun with Upland Gun Company today. Visit UplandGunCompany.com. And I know that, I know this, obviously being a a Minnesota resident, that that we've got some really unique funding mechanisms in Minnesota that, that allow for some pretty significant habitat improvements to be made and maybe we'll get into that a little bit but it's not it's not the same everywhere and you've got you've got coworkers sort of around the country that that are dealing with rough grouse management forestry in other areas of the country where where mm-hmm. the landscapes are different and I won't ask you to get into the nitty-gritty of all that stuff but what are the what are some of the challenges that we face with respect to forest management in this part of the world versus mm-hmm. other parts of the world and and one of the things on my mind is you know, here we have a, in the upper Great Lakes, it, it, forestry is still uh, an industry that doesn't have nearly the headwinds as it does in, in other areas of the country. So in other areas of the country, that's it's hard to even point. get get trees cut and forest management to take place, whereas that's not as big of an issue here. But I but I wonder what some of our other challenges are. Yeah, you, you're really helping me out with, with all of the... Uh, <laughs> um, uh, important points that I that I should be remembering to make. Uh, that's my, my job, Scott. But yeah, well, that's that's great, Nick. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, I, I mean, we we are really lucky in Minnesota. Uh, the, the Moose Habitat Collaborative that I mentioned before. I, I should have acknowledged the uh, Lassard Sam's Outdoor Heritage Council and the Outdoor Heritage Fund in Minnesota. That in particular, amongst other uh, grant opportunities for uh, habitat enhancement work um, are extremely important and valuable in Minnesota. But you mentioned forestry in general and in rough grouse society, we, we know and we, we fully embrace the, the value and importance um, of, of active forest management. And in that we require a, a, um, a, a vibrant forest industry and um, we're we're better off than a lot of the other areas in the rough grouse range, but we we do have some issues. The arrowhead is is lacking in in adequate uh, forest industry to to pay for some of the work that mm. that we want to have done, the vegetation management we want to have done, the number of operators in the field, uh, loggers and, and forestry contractors is is somewhat dwindling in some of those areas. I I think that you know has a bit to do with with um labor shortages in in a lot of areas but um, um it's it's acutely observed in in northeast minnesota at this time but but we have those great grant funds we also have a an industry that can frequently help us achieve that work that we want to do and um that brings me to one <clears throat> one more uh, grant another lassard sam's Outdoor Heritage Council, Outdoor Heritage Fund grant that we don't have in hand yet, but um, should be getting, I believe, uh, anytime soon. And that's a, a strategic land acquisition grant, which which is not at all like any of the other big land acquisitions where private industrial lands that are prone to being sold to private landowners have been acquired in large quantities in the past in Minnesota. This is strategic where existing public lands or public access lands and forest lands uh, in northern Minnesota um, have 
small strategic parcels that that are important access points or in holdings that confound management, um, the, the existing management that that existing public land agencies already have planned. And so this acquisition grant will find, for example, a, a lone private 40 that has the critical recreational and management access point mm. to get into an otherwise large block of, of public land and, and pursue acquiring that and, and transferring that to the public land agency to improve their existing um, um, management efficiencies and, um, and ecological management efficiency. So <clears throat> I guess that that just kind of depicts uh, the, the point you made that we um, largely in Minnesota are lucky enough to to embrace existing uh, forest land use uh, to achieve our habitat and, and uh, ecological forestry goals. So um, as long as we, you know, keep moving forward in the right direction with uh, the forest industry, we can we can keep those lands public and uh, um, uh, private lands are important too. But um, and keep our our forests diverse and healthy and uh, our our forest industry healthy. So right, right, yeah. yeah. That's so <laughs> yeah. So on the on the have there been lands acquired under that under that there, purchase agreement? Not, or that grant? Not by us yet. Okay. Not not yet. No, and, and actually, we don't we don't even officially have that in hand. But uh, it's been recommended to the legislature, and I, I suppose any time uh, we should hear something back on that. So cool. So so, it, so yeah. I think you you painted the picture pretty clear. But I'm just I'm just wanting wanting to visualize. So you've got say sure. maybe a, a piece of public land that is that is somewhat bordered by private land where where there and there's not a great access point. That, that grant would enable you to perhaps buy one of those private parcels and and allow access to get in there and manage the the forest is that correct that's exactly right yeah or also even in in holding um, there where management is confounded where you know where let's say the the land managing agency wanted to see uh, the diversity of age classes and and uh, and the stand that the the natural stand is contiguous across uh, a legal boundary. So let's say uh, county land on, on the east side of a line and, and private land on the west side, but the stand they want to manage crosses both. And and in that case, there's a management efficiency where, where uh, you know, if, if timber harvesting is something that was desired to promote a young age class, they'd have to run legal lines and, and dice that stand into two pieces uh, to a achieve that management goal. So, um, this would, this would help in that regard to, uh, for efficiency and ecologically guided management. Is, is there a, and maybe this is going back to your county forester days, but is there, when, when mm -hmm. a, when a timber sale is being conducted and a, and a cut is being conducted, is there a policy for like, are you knocking on neighbors' doors and say, "Hey, we're gonna we're gonna have a logging crew in here to, to cut this stand. Would you be interested in us doing this on like, how does that work? That's 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 great. Uh, that's one of the realms that uh, uh, Rough Grouse Society, with our various partnerships, should be, and and we we definitely endeavor to to bring to the table is talking, helping talk to the neighbors. But yes, all the different agencies have different levels of communication when when they uh, are engaging in management. Uh, I think most when they when they're going to harvest uh, or or do various types of management, right up to a, a a common boundary 
most at least communicate their intent just just uh, to ensure that everybody's on the same page. Not necessarily though to um, you know to coordinate management or ecological management efficiency, but the. Rough Grouse Society is engaging in a, in a variety of collaborative groups, um, the Moose Habitat Collaborative being one of them, where we try to meet up with with the, the various land managing uh, authorities or, or managers to to just talk about what's going on and, and get up to speed and see where uh, um, upcoming uh, project plans might might complement each other or detract from each other and, yeah. and maybe change direction so that's that's a it's a tough thing i you know over the years this is the the idea of partnering and collaborating um it takes a lot of work and time and coordinating and, yeah. and in the past uh, a lot of the, the different agencies have worked in silos uh, uh just doing their own business on their own piece of of land um without particular concern consideration for the neighbors and so there's yeah there's a lot of uh, groups including us rough grouse society that want to help uh, improve that that collaborative uh, efficiency so yeah there's uh there's there's e- evolving increasing policies to to deliberately do that by by most of the organizations that we're talking about yeah, yeah. and and one of the i mean one of the reasons i asked that question is is you know r- rough grouse hunting and rough grouse habitat management more importantly is it's mm-hmm. a it's a it's a public land sport as as ted dick uh, used to he used to always yep. say that and i never forgot that and it really is it, and that's what makes it unique because that's where where we in these large swaths of public land we can get this kind of management done that that benefits rough grouse but when you've got a bunch of smaller private parcels you know 40 acres here 40 acres there um, you're not getting you're not typically getting that sort of large scale management across those across those properties or it's harder to do exactly at a minimum it's much more difficult to implement right exactly (laughs) yep yep and yeah and actually i've been i've been seeing more um i of course a a big user of onyx hunt and and they have a Uh they have a forest disturbance layer in there in minnesota as of last year that's pretty cool and it shows forest disturbances a lot of what you see on public lands but i see a fair amount of them on private land and i i I don't know that you'll know the answer to this but i i see enough of those disturbances on private land that i wonder i wonder how those if they're if they're just being picked up satellite imagery or if they're actually part of a sale that was that happened um and were you know was done on private and public land i i don't know i just sort of something i've observed no i'm Certainly not the specialist, but of course we we work with Onyx too, <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and and love to. I mean, I probably use that more than anything else, just for even for project uh, navigation yeah. and things like that. But uh, the you know a variety of agencies have um, uh, work with Onyx to to um, to share their the Forest Service. I know for sure shares their uh, timber harvesting or or habitat work. Uh, polygons with onyx and they put them right on there and so then you see the exact delineated lines of management that happened on the uh, uh on onyx but on the disturbance layers but but i do believe they have um some you know comparison um imagery yep. disturbance uh, identifiers so because i you know you can find things like a, a a new beaver pond or something like that that uh 
that that'll show up as a disturbance in 2015 or whatever. And um, and so I suspect that those private non-industrial land uh, disturbance layers are coming from that. But we'll, we'll have to talk with Onyx about sure. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no. we have hopes to uh, as, as a side note um, uh, discussion with Onyx on on getting some of our rough grouse society related uh, projects yeah. shared and put on to Onyx and um, that's on my list to to do. We, we also have another grant, the LCCMR, a hunter walking trail grant um, that we're working on uh, improving our our mapping and uh, kind of the long term management idea of deliberate or designated hunter walking trail networks in Minnesota. And that's something we'd like to uh, get onto Onyx to one of these days. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That's, I mean, shameless plug obviously, but Onyx is, it's it's got such a great user interface and, and I imagine many, many listeners have used it, but I just, Mm -hmm. you know, I find val of course, a ton of value in it, but I just seeing the, seeing the timber activity and some of those disturbances within Onyx, it just, it really just deepens your connection with, the landscape, at least for me. And I just, I just really enjoy being in the forest and then sort of, sort of comparing that, looking at the maps and, you know, knowing here I am on public land and this disturbance was here and then yeah. you, you see it with your own eyes and you walk it with your own boots. It just back to your original point. That is yeah, one of the wonderful things about rough grouse hunting in particular. Yes. Back to your original point on uh, uh, the uniqueness of the being a public land sport. And uh, yeah, we're lucky to, uh, to have that. Yeah. Well, one thing I did, I do want to talk about for sure is kind of the spark to this conversation is I recently read an article that you wrote in the covers magazine about sort of wildlife openings, old log landings, the the -hmm. connection to pollinators. And, and you, you mentioned it here on the podcast using some of those stewardship funds to sort of permanently uh, maintain wildlife openings. So let's start with the basics. What is a, a forest opening? Sure. Yeah, well, uh, a forest opening is uh, a, a place in the canopy of the forest where um, where it's open. <laughs> it's a little bit remedial there. Uh, I wish I had a better start off explanation, but yeah, I I think I you know I I, I uh, proposed in that uh, in that article that that openings you know forests are dynamic; they change yes. and. Um, historically naturally things like what we just talked about uh, a, a new beaver dam or a fire insect disease outbreak a wind event a variety of things over time humans and and prescribed fire um have have created and sometimes kept patches of the forest open and and you know different forest ecosystems have different fire or ecological regimes where uh you know how much forest or how often typically does is a forest disturbed or or opened up but um yeah in that article i just point out that um openings in the forest are first of all they're for us in rough grouse and woodcock world and in other uh uh forest wildlife appreciators we uh, are a lot of these species have particular benefit or need for gaps in the can in the forest canopy in these yeah. openings to to do various sessions of their of their life and um um with this stewardship work and the on the chippewa national forest the 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 forest service themselves had identified um a variety of, of forest wildlife openings that were sometimes deliberately created for 
these wildlife benefits. Um, sometimes were incidentally created in other management, like a log landing area, mm-hmm. and then and then maintained by the U.S. Forest Service in an open status for these wildlife benefits and recreational, importantly. I mean, uh, it's nice to run your dog around the perimeter of uh, a wildlife opening and and be able to see them work a little bit. So that's yes. nice. But yeah, and in there, I, I, I'm jumping to your point, I think, about the pollinator piece. The, these, yeah. these wildlife openings are, um, you know, naturally... We like to have some uh, ecologically, I should say. We'd like to have some naturally. Some occur, um, and and we can use them in in um, for recreation and management for uh, for log landings and things like that. So when we have them, um, there's been I suppose an emerging knowledge that that we need to restore or or enhance uh, the the diversity of flowering native flowering plants for uh, pollinator uh, insect species, uh, some with uh, decline concerns, population concerns, and some just because we know of the importance of providing and, and having um, more pollinator insects on the landscape. And and these wildlife openings tend to offer an opportunity to to provide that for for those pollinator species themselves, but also there's a bit of uh, uh, a little bit of literature. Uh, I, I'm not the most knowledgeable on this subject, but uh, because of the stewardship work and and um, because of uh, being asked to write that little article about uh, pollinator openings, uh, did a little bit of digging, and um, there there is some a bit of evidence to to show the importance of of greater. Uh, flowering plant diversity in these openings and, and how that might be particularly beneficial to to rough grouse brood rearing. Um, obviously, those openings are still going to provide the woodcock singing grounds. Right. And um, under the same ideas, the, the general uh, principle of diversity on the landscape, um, I think that applies to the, the species on a wildlife opening, uh, greater diversity of, of species of, of plants on these uh, wildlife openings is, is going to provide a broader array of, um, of uh, foraging uh, opportunities for a variety of wildlife and, um, and obviously for the pollinator insects themselves. So is it a newer, I mean, obviously log landings have always, have always been a thing, but it are, you kind of, you mentioned emerging is, is, are, are we leaning into a little bit more sort of the importance and, and the science around some of these forest openings? Yeah, I, I think so. I, you know, the, the poll- pollinators, the, the knowledge that, that we need to, uh, be considerate or, or have consideration for, for pollinating insects, um, I, that's somewhat new. Yeah, that's that's very current. Yeah, yeah, and and I would say that maybe I, I think I even wrote this in the in that article, but it it does seem out in agricultural uh, landscapes where where restoration of of wildlife and habitat cover is happening. It, it seems like they've and and maybe you know where herbaceous and forbs and wildflowers are are considered a more dominant part of the landscape of the natural landscape they've been 
engaged in restoring um, uh, flowering plants, native flowering plants for a bit longer. And then mm-hmm. in the forest, I, you know, we we're usually managing for woody, woody cover. And, and I, I think a lot of us have not given as much consideration for, um, you know, the, the herbaceous plants. And um, so, yes, it's for, for those reasons, I believe it's, it's emerging. The Chippewa National Forest people that I get to work with, they, they've been doing this um, for quite a while. I don't know how long exactly, but sure. they, they've, they've, they've got some um, um, trial plots, I guess, where they're restoring appropriate flowering uh, plants and they're at various numbers of years after establishment of those and they're you know looking at their success and costs and in restoring these flowering plants and then i i believe some some kind of at least anecdotal observations of uh you know the benefits that they're seeing to to the insect to the pollinators so they've been doing it um uh, but but uh, the rest of us are, you know, getting engaged and, and it just, it just kind of fits. It's kind of a no brainer in these wildlife openings when you, when they, when a disturbance happens on some of them or, or if you do a prescribed fire or what are the opportunity you have to, to, to do um, some work on them to, to promote restoration of diverse flowering plants. So that, that is relatively new. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's probably the narrative, you know, it's just, it's very, if you really, really, simplify it you know when you think of forest you think of trees you know a dense dense canopy yes of of trees yep. and that was that's really the question around forest openings whereas whereas you you know aptly point out that forests are dynamic and the historically we we definitely know now that you know with fire and other disturbances you know there were openings all the time and that's part of what what makes our forests what they are so to yes. to take these opportunities we have in in management and and timber sales to utilize these openings that are created and then maintain them it's not only good for habitat but good for hunting as well yeah exactly yeah great summary I think it's funny and it's worth pointing out. Yes, is I'm mostly a forester by by most of my work and most of my training. Although I, of course, argue the importance of uh, of of habitat management being integrated in that at all times in my career and especially now. But uh, point is that the first article I wrote after coming on this job with Rough Grouse Society, I was asked to write about openings. I thought that was pretty funny. <laughs> primarily a forestry background. The first thing I get to write about is wildlife openings. Right. But yeah, I definitely see the, the benefit in, and even the uh, appropriateness with, with forest management as we talked about. But um, yeah, it's uh, it, it just makes sense to, uh, to uh, uh, for all those reasons to uh, enhance when you can um, the pollinators on them. So yeah. yeah. And, and, and like you pointed out, we've we've talked about it on the show many many times. Just as a as a bird hunter, anywhere anywhere the canopy is opened up up and sunlight is reaching the ground, you you can expect sort of increased diversity there. Whether it's whether it's flowering shrubs and plants that might draw in insects that might draw in a brood of grouse, or a lot of times you'll get fruit bearing fruit bearing shrubs and stuff that that could exactly feed feed grouse through the hunting season. So um, as as I'm again have pointed out many times i'm i'm looking for those anywhere if i'm out walking yeah. walking bird cover and you know this as well as anyone if you see an opening in the canopy and sunlight coming down i'm 
I'm making a beeline for that opening and I'm going to, I'm going to work the edge of it with my dog. Absolutely. Yep. And if nothing else, it's, it's satisfying to actually be able to see your, yes. your dog. From it, so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It makes, uh, <laughs> makes the walk through the woods a little bit more enjoyable and just sort of adds, adds diversity on, on multiple levels. Absolutely. Uh, you yep. did you did mention in that article, which I thought was kind of interesting, that you know clover is one thing that a lot of people will talk about clover being mm-hmm. being on on old skid trails or and it is good for grouse. Grouse eat plenty of clover. Absolutely. Um, but, but you drew some not comparisons, but sort of proposed the idea of some other plants that would flower throughout various times of the season, right? But they're but clover is kind yes. of an easy thing to plant, whereas these other ones are not so easy. Yeah, yeah, great summary of of that. I um, one of the main um, best practices to achieve improving uh, pollinator habitat is is to have flowering that occurs through the growing season. Uh, logically, if if a site has just uh, a species that flowers early in the spring and then nothing is flowering the whole rest of the growing season, well, the, the pollinators aren't going to be particularly benefiting or using that that site so when you can promote uh, an appropriate uh, diversity of flowering that's that's known to be beneficial to the pollinators themselves but yeah i, I definitely don't want to condemn the the clover i right i, I know there's I, and i wrote in there there's there's lots of reasons and places and, and important opportunities to use clover in fact we have a partnership with uh, Blandon Paper Company on on some of their uh, public access lands and uh, um, on a rough grouse management area that that we get to do with them. And um, post timber harvesting, uh, the Rough Grouse Society purchased some uh, native flowering plants for the openings uh, that were disturbed in in log hauling this winter. And uh, but but we we still seeded white clover um for them on the uh the trail the skid trails themselves or the road access routes themselves so there's there's still a lot of opportunities or places where where clover works out really well so cool i was uh reading about openings and and kind of thinking ahead to this this conversation you know there's nothing quite like when you're when you're you know a lot of times log landings are you know, in a real obvious spot, you know, right at an access point right off a road. But there are other times where you're deep in the woods and you're, you're in a, a, an area that has been cut and you know that, and you come across an old log landing where you can just tell it's just sort of the remnant of the opening there. And maybe there's a slash pile and that's usually covered up in, in raspberry. And I mean, those places yeah. are like, when you find one of those places, you know, get the gun ready. Cause th- those are, that's where, that's <laughs> where you want to be. Gotta be a bird there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I agree. <laughs> How are how are those how are those log landings? I mean, I, I imagine most of it is just sort of determined on, on kind of where it makes sense to do it. But if you find one in the woods like that, what is the is it? What would be the impetus for a log landing being there? Just a natural spot where they're making making that sale and can get the timber out. Yeah, I, I the placement of log landings is is almost always trying to put it on a location with maximum efficiency yeah. to kind of skidding um bringing the wood that the timber out of the woods to a place where it can be put on a truck so you know you need a, a a decent road getting to that to that log landing but then they're you know dispersed as far into the woods as as they feel the need so that there's an 
you know, different operators, different timber harvesting operators have different standards for their own efficiency, but, but they, you know, typically don't want to uh, skid or forward the, the timber to the landing more than say a quarter mile okay. ever at any point. So it just becomes just, you know, you think of the fuel and the time and those return back and forth trips, um, um, skidding wood. And, and so it's so kind of like checkpoints along the sale, so to speak. Sure. Yeah. Yep, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, okay. One other thing I wanted to ask you about for sure was, so, so last night I, we had a, we had a meeting for our local rough grouse society chapter. And, and one of the common questions that comes up, and I know this from, from even going back to when I worked for rough grouse society and, Mm -hmm. you know, been a volunteer since, but one of the things people ask about a lot, they want to get involved and they want to do some kind of habitat work. You know, they want to go get their, Mm -hmm. go get their hands dirty and, um, you know, we could Absolutely. talk about some of the the large scale habitat management happens really at a different level than, say, a habitat day. But that's not to diminish the significance of a group of five, 10, 15 people getting together and getting their hands dirty and, and giving them a job to do. And my my, you know, I would imagine you could get overwhelmed with people sort of looking for opportunities. How does a chapter go about finding an opportunity like that? Is it is it calling up DNR wildlife managers or how do we how do we identify a forest opening and go plant some trees, Scott? That's what I'm asking. Yeah. <laughs> no, I I'm with you. I and I'll, I'll just tell you, I personally have have always been an advocate of the importance of those those habitat days it, directly they they bring some kind of benefit yep. to planting some desired species or installing a gate or picking up garbage or whatever it may be they, they bring a benefit i i think maybe more importantly they bring people together in enthusiasm and engagement yep. for the for the big idea I, you know, we've talked I, and so i i have i advocated for that uh kind of work when when i was a member uh years ago and and have personally i've I've done that my whole life as as an aside uh engaged in in um habitat days doing them myself uh finding them and 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 just doing work as as my own scott johnson habitat day but but also coordinating some um as a volunteer have done that in my time in minnesota and colorado and uh continue to do that now so agree with that and what I will say, we do have occasional opportunities that, that come up that are appropriate for engaging people in a habitat day. And, and Rough Grouse Society definitely wants to, Sam and I have talked a bunch about this, we want to further those opportunities and uh, kind of standardize how we go about sharing that with people. Yep. But more often they come up just you know, it's not spontaneously or just incidentally here and there. And in, and I actually have a couple, when you brought that up, I, I would like to note um, before we leave, leave our conversation, but, but, it, but I think it comes down to um, people who want to engage in, in direct habitat work, uh, volunteers and members. Um, they, they really need to be a champion of, helping to find and coordinate those habitat days themselves. And, right. and, and I think they certainly can and should start with, with their, uh, their staff representatives like me or Sam or leadership like you and 
and say, what do you know? And what do you think? And, and, and we go back and forth on, well, where is it you want to do this? What's your time frame? How many people do you want to, you know, how, how much work do we want to do? Because, you know, my job, I would say my greatest success in, in achieving work on the ground is, is it's just inherently going to, going to happen by embracing, like we talked about before, embracing, uh, timber industry people and, uh, you know, other partners on, on big projects that are, you know, multi many thousands and up dollar projects. These are, they're just not things that, that, um, that uh, a, a volunteer or two can do on a weekend, but again, certainly not diminishing from the, the value of that. So, so they need to help find them and, and identify, it just comes down to, to the details. What, what do you want to do? How much do you want to do? When do you want to do it? And, and who, who, what ownership and where will, you know, will let you do that. And then certainly there's questions on, is this, is this a benefit? Is this a good a good project. And, yep. and, and that, that comes down to a discussion too, though, you know, do we need an opening in an area? Well, we can help do an uh, assessment of, of whether a, a wildlife opening will help, but some things are no brainers. Uh, picking up garbage in the woods, that's right. going to cut up our dogs or planting some diversity of species on a, on some particular area. Those, those are no brainers. We can, we can uh, support those, but so that with the Chippewa national forest stewardship, project we actually have some um hunter walking trail networks and um associated uh in waterfowl impoundment areas where there's um been improvements done over over time for uh you know for water retention waterfowl hunting kind of but the they're they're kind of managed and maintained so encroaching brush and um um keeping those those uh, impoundment dams open uh, through periodic mowing is something that on that stewardship agreement that we want to um, see if we can engage some uh, membership volunteers on. Um, we have these hunter walking trail grants that we're that we're working on right now across ownerships and we want to find people around the state who know of hunter walking trails in their areas and know that um, they may need a, a new gate or a new sign and uh, might be willing to go out there and take a picture and summarize what what the needs are that they see there and, and maybe come back out and install a gate to a, a sign or something like that. Um, yeah, so we, you know, we, we have them now and then with that um, Blandon Paper Company um seeding i did this spring i got some uh local volunteers to come help me uh put that um uh pollinator seed out and and clover seeding so they they happen and uh just you know communicating and staying in touch and and uh and even better yet um engaging and and helping find the the project and coordinating the project uh themselves that's that's really how it happens so yeah yeah Awesome. Well, Scott, I, uh, I really appreciate you taking some time to come on and chat with us here on the Birdshot podcast. We, we talked plenty of, of Minnesota forestry, but, uh, as, as listeners will know, rough grouse society has a, has a much, uh, wider range than that. And I will uh, put the appropriate links and contact information on the website, but great. If people are kind of fired up or charged up after hearing this conversation mm-hmm. a little bit, go on to Rough Grouse Society website and look up their their local representative or forest conservation coordinator and contact them. Was that the best way to do that, Scott? Yep, yep, that's it. I'd be on the on the Great Lakes uh, uh, link on there, and um, yeah, 
that's that's how you find us. Awesome. Well, we will. You and I will keep in touch, and we'll, like I said, our our chapters uh, we're getting reignited, and we're pretty fired up to do some of that stuff. So maybe we can come up with with something and check in with you again. But we've got uh, just a few more months till hunting season, and let's hope for good yeah. good uh, nesting and hatch good conditions. Survival. Year. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate it, Nick. It was a great conversation. You really helped uh, me dial in some of the important things I, I was hoping to share with uh, your folks. So, and, and glad to hear about your chapters uh, increasing enthusiasm. That's great. Yeah, absolutely. Well, hopefully folks take something away from this conversation. And that does it for another episode of the Birch Hat Podcast. Thank you to Scott, and we'll catch you on the next episode. Thanks, Nick. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Birdshot Podcast presented by Onyx Hunt, Final Rise, and Upland Gun Company. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and share. And if you really love the show and want to contribute above and beyond what you already do by listening, you can sign up at patreon.com forward slash birdshot. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Birdshot Podcast. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.